Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. This is a podcast that takes an historical approach to early Christianity, and we're dealing with the series Early Christian Portraits of Jesus. In the previous episode, we began to sketch out Matthew's Gospel's portrait of Jesus as the new Moses, and began to see very much how this is a Judean Gospel written to a Judean community. In this current episode, we investigate that further and consider the way in which the Gospel of Matthew reflects a community of Judeans who believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah in tension with other groups of Judeans who are more in line with what you could call Pharisees. This will entail having to look into the destruction of the temple in 70 CE and how it impacted the history of Judaism. In particular, we'll have to investigate rabbinic Judaism that emerged in the late first century and seems to reflect a type of Judaism that Matthew's Gospel is in tension with. I hope you enjoy this episode and feel free to consult my website at www.philipharlan.com. Let's continue here though. We're now in the section from chapter 4 to 11, the ministry of Jesus. Something else to highlight in this section is the rehabilitation of the disciples that Matthew does when he encounters the bumbling idiots of Mark's gospel. Matthew softens the portrait in a way that has no faith changed to little faith. And then he has a particular interpretation of what little faith is. But if you look in chapters 8 to 9, you have this rehabilitation of the disciples. This is the same section that's taken from Mark that is a series of miracles in Mark's Gospels, a series of healings and miracles. And in this section, he's borrowing from Mark, but he has a slightly different way of portraying things. If you look at chapter 8, verse 26, there's been all these miracles happening. The disciples have been witnessing them. And then the windstorm is calmed that you had in Mark's Gospel. Jesus says to his disciples, instead of, why are you afraid? Why do you have no faith? Which is Mark. Here is, you have little faith. Then you have a series of other places where things are softened as well. So chapter 14, verses 31 to 33. Jesus walks on the water. Peter sinks. A story about Peter that we don't have in Mark. And then Jesus says to them, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Look at this next phrase. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the key one, actually, that brings together two main themes in Matthew that are different than Mark. The rehabilitation of the disciples, and not only that, but the disciples are portrayed as having little faith. And yet, this is something that does not happen in Mark's gospel, is it? Bowing down and recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. You do have the saying in chapter 17 that, he, that Jesus says that you just need faith the size of a mustard seed and you can move a mountain. That gives you the interpretive key for understanding what little faith is. Let's move ahead now to the next section, the repudiation of Jesus that takes place after Jesus has been teaching and healing, making people aware of who he is and what he's doing. And then we have a series of indications that he's being rejected. This rejection of Jesus is central to Matthew's gospel, and it's also central to other gospels, but in this particular way, it's uh, characteristic of Matthew's gospel. In this section in chapter 11, the section begins with this idea of identity, the presentation of who Jesus is, and then people being offended and repudiating Jesus. And then Jesus responding by saying what the consequence of repudiating him is, namely that God will repudiate them. So this whole section is about a series of repudiations of Jesus, rejections of Jesus. 
So let's look briefly at that before we move on to some other things. I'm in chapter 11, verses 2 and following. When John the Baptist heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. That's sort of a summary of what's happened in the previous section, the healing and teaching. Jesus here is presented as saying, that tells you who I am, that I am the anointed one, that I am the Messiah. But look at what Jesus says, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. You then have interspersed in the next section a series of people who do take offense at Jesus and who repudiate him. So that in chapter 11, Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard. Further in chapter 11, you have Jesus saying, I've been rejected by these whole cities. And then he says the Galilean cities, because they haven't accepted his uh, approach to things, he condemns them. His run-ins with authorities, with Jewish leaders, are accelerating in this period, and obviously they reject him. And then you have the saying about Beelzebul. So the accusation of Jesus being the leader of demons is in this section. Chapter 12, I believe it is. You have another little typological snippet where Matthew has Jesus himself portray himself as Jonah. So you have some typological thinking that links up with the rejection theme in chapter 12, verses 38 and following. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so, three, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. And then it goes on to say, Jonah is here. You then have another one of the main discourses that we aren't able to go through all the five main discourses today. I want to highlight some other things in the meantime. One is something I mentioned earlier, but I want to underline, and that is the fact that God, Jesus is portrayed as God with us seems to be combined with the fact that some of the disciples recognize that he's the Son of God and actually bow down. In other words, do an action that is usually only associated with God. And there are several points in the narrative where characters bow down to Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 11, the astrologers bowing down to the infant Jesus. Chapter 28, 9 to 10, after the resurrection, disciples bowing down to Jesus. It seems that this motif of characters in the story bowing down before Jesus is linked to the, to the factor of Jesus being portrayed as God with us. So that people bow down to Jesus to the extent that Jesus is God with us. Now this points to a higher Christology. How much higher? Hard to know. But definitely a higher Christology than Mark's gospel. Where first of all, you have no one even recognizing who Jesus is anyways. So they're not likely to bow down before him. But even the ones who do recognize who he is at the critical points don't bow down to him. Let's move ahead now to the last section. Part 3 of uh, Matthew's Gospel, which is from chapter 16 to 28, to the end, including the Passion narrative. Matthew takes on most of the Passion narrative in the form he finds it in Mark. So there won't be a whole lot new in the actual arrest and trial of Jesus and execution of Jesus in Matthew. But there's some new twists and turns along the way, little things that we'll see. But there's whole new sections, though, in this section from chapter 16 to 28. This is the section that begins, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. 
The previous section had that from this time on aspect, and it's showing you that the author's telling you he's moving on. In chapter 17, you have the story of the transfiguration, as it's known, where Jesus is seen alongside prophetic figures from the past, and there's a big bright effect, and it's this overwhelming vision of Jesus meeting with prophets from the past. The way in which Matthew takes this on from Mark, it's in Mark, the way that Matthew takes this on from Mark deliberately uses terminology that describes Moses when he comes down from Mount Sinai in the Hebrew Bible. So that the portrayal of Jesus as the new Moses is sometimes subtly still going on. Matthew actually borrows terms and phrasing from the story of Moses coming down from seeing God and being overly bright that people couldn't look at Moses. Remember that in the Hebrew Bible? And so Jesus is portrayed using some of the terminology from that description, further underlining what you already knew anyways from the birth narrative and from the Sermon on the Mount, and that is that Jesus is the new Moses. You also have Discourse 4, one of the five discourses that is new to Matthew in chapter 18, where Jesus speaks about the church as an institution and rules that should take place within the church. It seems to be, in other words, a bit of a projection back to Jesus' time on some things that are more important in the late first century. We're in chapters uh, 21 to 23. You have a series of conflicts with authorities, some of which are taken from Mark's gospel. And remember that as in Mark's gospel, this conflict with authorities is very important in the plot line of Matthew. So you'll have the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the proclamation that Jesus is the son of David in that section, so confirming that portrayal of Jesus as the descendant of David, Jesus' authority being questioned, and then Jesus telling some parables that actually point the finger at the authorities for rejecting him. The parable of the wicked tenants were about a landowner who has a vineyard and who has tenants to take care of it. The landowner sends messengers in order to collect the produce from the land he owns. The tenants are working his land and are supposed to be giving the food to the landowner in this parable. And then the landowner sends more people to try and collect the produce and they beat him up. And then they finally kill his own son. And then this is a parable about Jesus, isn't it? It's about Jesus saying they're going to kill him. It's, it's a flash forward to any moment now, actually, in the narrative. Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. And it's pointing the finger at the authorities for rejecting him, uh, rejecting a prophet that is amongst them. Then finally, you have this extensive section that is not in any of the other Gospels. Gives you important insight into the context of Matthew in the 90s CE, most likely, where Matthew's community of Judean followers of Jesus are having difficulties with other Judean groups, including Judean groups that are emerging in connection with what is often labeled rabbinic Judaism. Let me give you a little bit of context, and we'll, then we'll look at this passage in Matthew's Gospel. The destruction of the temple in 70 CE precedes Matthew's writing. When the temple is destroyed, all Judeans are in a huge conundrum. The temple was the dwelling place of God in the mind of Judeans. We learned that way back at the beginning of the course with those main common denominators of Judaism. That the temple is sort of the central symbol of God's presence among his people. And then when the temple is destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans, this is a huge catastrophe for all Judeans. What do you do once the central symbol of your whole Judean way of life is destroyed? Once the central symbol of where your God dwells is destroyed? Well, you've got to find a way to deal with it, or you simply disappear. 
And there's a sense in which 70 marks a, a watershed in the history of Judaism. Because before 70 CE, you have plenty of evidence of a diversity within Judean culture, such that there's a variety of ways of following Judean laws and a variety of ways of feeling that you're following what God wants you to do. So we even looked at a few examples of the educated groups. We had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, educated groups. But on top of that, you know that there's a huge diversity of popular ways of being Judean. There may be common denominators among all these people. One of them is the temple is central and that's God's dwelling place. Another one is God who dwells in that temple made a covenant with his people. Another one is that the covenant that he made it with his people entails following the Torah and that we need to worship only that God. So those are common denominators and yet there's a diversity of groups. Some of them are arguing with one another about what precisely it means to follow the Torah. This is where we need to place Matthew's group within a diversity of Judean groups having different ways of answering what it means to follow the Torah and what it means to worship God in a proper way. What we see in the sources before that as a huge diversity suddenly is narrowed down. It's almost like the destruction of the temple destroyed, not literally destroyed the people, but destroyed some of the diversity that we were aware of before that. Well, one thing you can say is this. There are two main types of groups who are Judean, who follow the Judean God, who survive the destruction of the temple. One of them is the Jesus movement. The other one is what scholars label rabbinic Judaism. In the wake of the destruction of the temple, Judeans are scrambling with what to do now that the temple's destroyed. That's where sacrifices take place. That's where God is worshipped. That is where God dwells. What do we do? Well, some somewhat organized people start to decide what to do. And they get together in Jamnia, a city on the coast of Israel. And these are primarily, though not solely, people that would be considered Pharisees. Teachers, rabbis, who are realizing that they need to do some organization and figuring out what to do in, in light of the destruction of the temple. And so in the 80s and 90s CE, these rabbis are getting together in Jamnia, discussing what to do. Because at that point, it didn't seem to be much hope of rebuilding the temple. There's obviously still hope that the temple could be rebuilt, but it doesn't seem very imminent that the temple will be rebuilt. All modern forms of Judaism branch out from what scholars call rabbinic Judaism. And all modern forms of Christianity that we know of branch out from this other Judean group that survived the destruction of the temple, the Jesus movement. These are siblings within Judaism that have different ways of coping with the loss of the central symbol of Judaism. Just to give you a quick scan of how some of the, uh, I'm going to get back to the rabbis in a moment, how some Christians deal with the loss of the temple, how some Judean followers of Jesus deal with the loss of the temple, they spiritualize the temple, is the most common way of coping with the loss of the temple among uh, first century and early second century Christian authors. Namely, they say, you don't need a physical temple we have a spiritual temple. And they might say God is the spiritual temple or Jesus is the spiritual temple. Or they might say the spiritual temple is the followers of Jesus. We are the spiritual temple. There's different answers depending on which author you look at. The spiritualizing of the temple is a common response to the fact that the temple is destroyed. The rabbis have a different strategy. I'm oversimplifying here, but this is a quick way of summarizing two different strategies on dealing with the destruction of the temple. The rabbis tend to focus more attention on study, 
of the Torah as the central ideal of how to live according to the Judean way of life. And so study of the Torah, in a sense, fills the gap of loss of the temple. But even within rabbinic writings, even within the Mishnah, which later on pulls together some of the sayings of the rabbis, including these rabbis that gathered in Jamnia, uh, even the Mishnah, which is focused on studying the Torah, there are uh, references to the temple that seem to speak as though there's a hope for the restoration of the temple. But nonetheless, there's a shift in focus towards studying the Torah. So I'm really oversimplifying here, but it's a quick way of telling you there's two survivors of the destruction of the temple that have two different strategies on dealing with things. And it turns out the two different survivors do not get along. And that's what we see in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's Judean community, who are believing Jesus is the Messiah, in the 90s CE, seem to have ongoing problems with rabbinic groups. Groups of Judeans who are more along the lines of what we know as rabbinic Judaism. And that seems to be reflected in what we have in chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel. In other words, in Matthew's tendency to pick sayings of Jesus that focus on the Pharisees and talking about how bad the Pharisees are. The point is he emphasizes Jesus having run-ins with the Pharisees in a way that the other gospels do not emphasize as much. They emphasize it too, but not as much. Luke actually downplays it in the sense that he has Jesus hanging out with Pharisees and partying with them all the time. But this is different, and it's partly because of this context. Matthew's living in the late first century at the time where rabbinic Judaism is forming, and there are clashes between these different Judean groups that have survived the destruction of the temple. And here we have it illustrated in chapter 23 in the mouth of Jesus. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. In other words, do the law. Do what they teach you. But do not do as they do. Here's the whole hypocrite characterization of Pharisees that later comes to influence how Christians look at Pharisees. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them, etc. Go down to the next. You're going to have this repeated. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees. This is illustrating the tension between Matthew's community and these other Judean communities in the late first century. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of Gehenna, the garbage dump where you burn forever, as, as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, further down. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, is a favorite phrase of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You then have the section 24 to 25 that draws on Mark's a little apocalypse, where you have even more apocalyptic material in Matthew, including what you find in Mark, but also a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven, by the way, which is a favorite phrase I forgot to mention about Matthew. When he sees the kingdom of God in Mark, his source, Matthew likes to say kingdom of heaven, and you'll notice that throughout Matthew's gospel. Kingdom of the heavens is actually what it is, often translated singularly anyways, kingdom of the skies. Judgment of the Gentiles. 
in chapter 25, verses 31 and following. Negative statements about Gentiles, very common in Matthew's Gospel. Then the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus, which draws on Mark's Gospel. But one thing I want to highlight for you in this section is something that Mark doesn't have that Matthew has that, again, becomes used in a particular way in subsequent history, unfortunately, but that we need to put it in the context of what we've just explained, namely that Matthew is a Judean writing to Judeans. But when Matthew has the trial with Pontius Pilate and has Pontius Pilate, just like in Mark, saying, I don't know what to do with this guy. Do as you will. He adds an additional thing that the crowd say. Anti-Semitic people start to use this as a further reason in subsequent history. But you need to place it in its first century context and understand it in Matthew in, under, in order to understand what it is about at all. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So far, so good. This is sort of how Mark would have it. But look at this next phrase that the crowd say. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. His blood be on us and on our children. This is later used for, in the context of anti-Semitism. However, in the context of Matthew's Gospel, it's a Judean author writing to Judeans, Jew writing to Jews, a portrait of Jesus that entails the crowds at Jesus' trial being blamed in large part for what happens. So it's an internal Judean issue. It's not a person outside of Judeans saying Judeans are to blame. It's a Judean blaming other Judeans. And you can understand it better within the context of that whole conflict that is going on between Matthew's community and other Judean groups in the late first century. The whole narrative, though, ends with the resurrection of Jesus and with the disciples who encounter Jesus after his resurrection worshiping him in chapter 28. So this whole bowing down before Jesus reconfirms a somewhat high Christology for the community who uses Matthew's gospel. With Mark's gospel, we concluded with saying what kind of community was behind it, and we said it's a Gentile writing to a Gentile audience. And you've already got it from what I've said so far with uh, Matthew that we have a Judean writing to a Judean audience, and that that comes through in how Jesus is portrayed, and it reflects the community that's using it. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records, and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.